Have you ever noticed that the world isn't quite what it presents itself to be? Something is just a little off kilter, a little out of focus. So many of you may know me from my work in the world of distilled spirits as the alchemist of the Black Forest, an industry more than a little influenced by the occult and the work of opening doors and capturing essences, at least for the way I see it. Here you'll see yet another side of what I do and how I'm influenced by such experiences. Here, I and occasionally friends will share first-hand experiences, stories shared with us, Fortean news, interviews, and a healthy dose of history and speculation. Settle in for the ride and enjoy. Perhaps that movement you observed out of the corner of your eye was more than a simple shadow. That weight on your shoulder, a bit more than fatigue. I've lived my whole life like this, perceptive of those things that might be viewed as simple circumstances, magical thinking, or even make-believe by those less aware than myself. Anticipating with the many ups and downs and just how active my perception is, often anxiously awaiting the more positive of those experiences and dreading those of a darker caliber. I believe from observation in the last couple of years that others are becoming more aware of the otherwise currently scientifically unmeasurable world that surrounds us, and I believe that spiritual warfare is real. Join us as we take a hard left away from the well-traveled path of civilization and fall headlong into the heath and hedges. Join us as we call out into the veil as the fabric frays at the edges, and recall, if you have ghosts, you have everything. This is Alan Bishop, head alchemist of Spirits of French Lake. With fall just around the corner and the crisp air begging for bonfires, friends, and ghost stories, don't forget to pick up our brand new Bottled and Bond Solomon Scott Rye Whiskey. Made from a mash bill of 65% rye, 30% corn, and 5% victory malt. Double pot distilled for retention and concentration of flavor. Never ever chill filtered and matured a full five years in number two char, medium plus toast head, 53 gallon new American oak barrels. Named for the legendary Daisy Spring Mill distillery owner, Solomon Scott. Remember, Respect the grain and drink responsibly. Alright guys, here it is. The inaugural, inaugural, I've already messed it up. The inaugural episode of If You Have Ghosts, You Have Everything. I'm your host, Alan Bishop, the alchemist of the Black Forest of Southern Indiana. I've been talking about doing a paranormal or a supernatural podcast now for several years on the distilling podcast that I've been a part of to the extent that I'm sure my friends and fellow podcast hosts are tired of hearing about this podcast that they presume would never exist. I finally took the leap of faith, bought some rudimentary podcasting equipment to try to learn what the hell I'm doing, uh, figured out just how far behind the times I really am and subsequently learned to appreciate the people I get to work with that are much more professional than I am. Uh, with this podcast production stuff much more so than I did before because I'll tell you right now for me this is not easy this is not easy stuff and it's not necessarily fun stuff but I do think that being able to tell these stories is going to be fun for me 
So if you're not familiar with me, I am a distiller, a professional distiller. I make whiskey and brandy and bourbon and botanical spirits and all those sort of things. You don't have to be a fan of any of that stuff to enjoy this podcast. Uh, this podcast may sometimes be tangentially related to those things or sometimes even very heavily related to those things, especially in history because of the region that I'm from, the region I represent, the history I try to protect and the history that I try to put out there for the world uh, to take in of my local region. If you're not familiar with the Black Forest region, it's a small area here in southern Indiana that's uh, composed of Washington, Orange, Lawrence, Crawford, Harrison, and Perry counties, where between the mid-1800s and Prohibition, there were multiple legal and illicit distilleries, over 155 legal distilleries to be exact. Um, and the history here is very, very interesting. Uh, one of the things that I consider myself uh, as much as a distiller is a historian and a storyteller. And we always say about our spirits, it's not just about the spirits in the bottle, but the spirits of the place. So I tend to name my spirits after people or places who didn't get necessarily represented well in history because maybe they were a little scandalous or maybe uh, they weren't part of the right political party or whatever the case may be. I like to represent them. I like to give them uh, some physical aspect uh, on a bottle, you know, an image and a story that can be associated with the product in that bottle. Because for me, distilled spirits as an alchemist uh, are very much a key to opening a door to changing perception. And sometimes that change perception allows us to see and experience things we wouldn't otherwise see. You certainly don't have to use any sort of manufactured uh, key to get there. Some people just have an altered perception as it is, and they're much more aware of the world that surrounds them and the things that most people ordinarily can't see. That's what this show is all about. Now, this first episode is basically a proof of concept to show that I can do this, to see to see just how serious I am about it and see if it's something I really enjoy doing. Uh, but secondarily, I can't promise you that future episodes will have the same layout as this. They may not. They may have guests on. Uh, they may have interviews that are pre-recorded on. Um, I may have a co-host. I don't know. To be honest with you, for me, it is a little bit weird to be sitting in my room talking to myself without having somebody that I can play off of telling these stories and talking about the things that I'm talking about. Now, that being said, I wanted this very first episode to be something super special uh, as an intro to what I want to do with this show. And what I mean by that is I wanted to tell a story that I've never gotten to tell before. So again, if you've ever followed my distilling history, you know that I've told some pretty scandalous, pretty interesting stories about multiple people in uh, the Black Forest region that I have named products after. But one of the names I never got to use uh, was the name of a, a gentleman that was here local to Washington County from Salem slash Beacon, Indiana, uh, by the name of John A. Bowman. And I never got to use Mr. Bowman's name because there is a whiskey company out of Virginia that does use the name Bowman. The Bowmans from that area are likely related to the gentleman that we're going to talk about here this evening. But that being said, I'm going to tie this back again one more time to my distilling history. So uh, having a very long history of illicit distillation in my family and myself having been distilling illicitly for a long time until I got into the legal industry, the very first spirit that inspired me to create a distilled spirit in honor of that person was Mr. John A. Bowman. Now, I didn't know much of anything about John A. Bowman uh, early on. I'd never even really heard the name. But what I did know was this. I grew up next to the old um, New Albany and Salem Railroad tracks, what became later the Monon route, and then even later was owned by CSX. And I only lived about a mile and a half, two miles away 
uh, just south of the John A. Bowman House. So having hiked those tracks many times uh, as a bored teenager in my life, I had certainly seen the place and it would be hard not to see it and hard not to notice it for what it is in the middle of nowhere. Hiking up those tracks, what you'll find is the house sets in between two county roads. So unless you're on the tracks, you wouldn't have seen it, you wouldn't have known it was there or unless you lived right next to it and you know somehow knew about it uh, through neighbors or hiking or whatever. But the very first thing you see when you walk up to the top, walk up those tracks and you get close to the house is that on the west side of the tracks, uh, where there's a curve in the tracks, there is a huge, upon a small hill, a huge granite obelisk. I do believe it is the largest standing obelisk in Washington County. That is the grave of John A. Bowman, who chose to be buried next to those tracks, as we'll find out, so he could always feel the train rattle his old bones in death. To the east side of the tracks upon a very beautiful picturesque hill is a federalist style house what locals here always called the governor's mansion because they didn't know the history now john a bowman was never a governor but as we'll find out he was certainly a state representative and a state senator a very important local businessman he had some interesting ties uh, to the south during that contentious civil war history period um, but was always 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 a loyalist to the north even if he didn't disagree or even if he didn't necessarily agree with everything the north did um, all that being said this show is going to be as much about history as it is about the supernatural and the paranormal because every good ghost story starts with a good life story so we're going to delve into the life story of john a bowman and then we're going to talk about the really interesting part which for me was researching this man, exploring the old abandoned house, exploring the old abandoned property, uh, later on getting a chance to be a part of renovating that house and finding a buyer for that house and the experiences, the very, very, very real paranormal experiences I had during that experience that shaped uh, what eventually would become the Lee W. Sinclair bourbon whiskey mash bill that I released. I ended up naming it Sinclair because, again, I couldn't use Bowman, and Sinclair was an associate of Bowman. So this is the true history of the Lee W. Sinclair bourbon mash bill for those who are into distilled spirits. And for those who aren't, stay tuned. There's going to be cool ghost stories, guys. All right, let's get into it. guys if you're still tuned into the show if you have ghosts you have everything you're clearly not yet tired of hearing me ramble about distillation the art thereof or the products created via distillation maybe even the history so i want to give a quick shout out a little advertisement to a group of some of my best friends in the world a coalition of fellow podcasters interested in the art of distillation or the products of distillation the bar cart co-op so the Bar Cart Co-op is literally a group of people who are interested in the same things that I am, the art of distillation and the products thereof. The Bar Cart Co-op is made up of some very unique shows. For example, if you love music? Check out Fervent Turntable. With interviews with producers and distillers out there in the craft industry, 
uh, talking about the music that they love, what inspires their distillation. Maybe they talk about individual bands, individual songs, individual years, stories, feelings, all of those things with Kevin Rose, Drew Crawley, uh, Benjamin Eves, sometimes myself, sometimes other guests. It's a great show all about music and distillaments. The other show I wanted to mention on here was My Whiskey Den on Monday evenings at nine o'clock on YouTube. Uh, you can check into My Whiskey Den with my friend Patrick, my friend Mike Lissack, my friend sometimes Benjamin Eves. He's always my friend, but sometimes he's on the show, sometimes he isn't. It just depends on how busy he is at Kentucky Artisan Distillery. Well, those guys, they check out craft distillaments from all over the United States and sometimes outside the United States. They do live tastings. They tell you exactly what they get from each uh, particular spirit that they're tasting through. It's a great show. They don't take themselves too seriously. They have a good time. They give a lot of laughs. And what else are you doing on a Monday evening after a long weekend and your first shitty day back to work? Honestly, uh, what a great show to tune into. If you're into the art and the methodology of distillation, then please tune into the other Bar Cart Co-op show, Distillers Talk, featuring myself and Christy Atkinson. We go deep in the distilling methodology, distilling history. We find unique, interesting producers out there doing weird things. Uh, we are the show for home distillers and also professional distillers to sort of get you a little more involved in the art of distillation. Guys, check it out, Bar Cart Co-op. You may have to search for the shows, Spotify, YouTube, look around. If you want to find it, you'll find it. It's out there. Love y'all. Enjoy the show. just who exactly was this John A. Bowman. Here's a little excerpt from an article that I actually wrote shortly before the house was purchased by its current owners and subsequently restored. I wrote this in 2012. Standing within the foyer of this aging but beautiful home, I can hear John A. Bowman loud and clear, and I can almost see him greeting business partners and guests in a dignified yet down-to-earth tone. The ghost marks upon the ceiling of the hall and the two rooms to either side thereof where once hung ornate ceiling medallions and carbide gaslit chandeliers remind us that although Mr. Bowman spent much of his life listing his occupation as a farmer, he was indeed no ordinary farmer. Indeed, at heart, Mr. Bowman was the quintessential self-made Southern businessman who had learned a thing or two about plantation architecture and developed a taste for culture and refinement, but whom also never forgot his beginnings as the son of a general farmer and Revolutionary War soldier on the Walnut Ridge in Monroe Township of Washington County, Indiana. John, or Jack as his friends knew him, was born in 1818, the son of John Bowman and mother Catherine Bowerman, whom had immigrated here from Blount County, Tennessee, and whom were respectively from Virginia and Pennsylvania. John was the second of 11 children and the eldest of his brothers, and he bore that responsibility well once the time came for him to ascend to the head of the family table upon his father's passing in 1845. Mr. Bowman, like many young men of his age, was educated quite simply in the local common schools of his time. History seems to make no reference of him continuing his education beyond his primary years, aside from a cabinetry apprenticeship in New Orleans, Louisiana. Washington County history records that one of the Bowmans ran a cabinet shop somewhere in the vicinity of John's father's home place, but it does not tell us if it were owned by John Bowman Sr. or potentially his own father, William. After his time in New Orleans, he returned home and began purchasing vast acreages of land at the tender age of 20. 
Little but no mention is made of how Mr. Bowman acquired what seemed to be a large inheritance, other than it was heir to him by family in Virginia. What is known, however, is that Mr. Bowman did not squander a dime of this money and only added to his fortune in the coming decades. For those who are interested in finding the source of Mr. Bowman's inheritance, it may be worth the time to research the descendants of George Bowman in Virginia, given the preponderance of military-based names and the name Pleasant in John Bowman's own family tree. To this monetary base, Mr. Bowman added a great deal of income through his ventures as a stock trader. The Bowman family in general were well known throughout the South as traders of excellent horses and mules and focused their business attention mostly on Alabama, Mississippi, and Louisiana. It was in this line of work that Mr. Bowman furnished his bread and butter, making frequent trips from Washington County, Indiana to the Deep South up until the outbreak of the Civil War, which he regarded in some ways as the quote-unquote death of his business. Undeterred, however, it is said that he made several quote-unquote by-night trips into the South, disappearing for a few weeks at a time to deliver his wares to places where there was such a demand. After the close of the war, Mr. Bowman re-engaged in the business for which he was so well known for a short time prior to serving again in the Indiana State Legislature. Around 1842, Mr. Bowman bought the site of his current home, located between Monsinger and Farabee stations on the old Monon route, and began building what would become known a hundred years later by those not knowledgeable in their history as the governor's mansion. The house which Mr. Bowman designed himself was built in a Federalist style, complete with the aforementioned foyer and two large greeting rooms with fireplaces, as well as a substantial back room and kitchen and a large half-story above, which featured a ballroom. It was fashioned using timber and nails from a small mill and a smithery located a stone's throw from the house, and bricks, which were molded somewhere in the vicinity of what was once known as Ferriby Station. Never forgetting his roots, Mr. Bowman also added a substantial root cellar to the southern end of the house, which likely provided adequate food storage to feed his family and workers through the cold winter months. To all this, Mr. Bowman added a number of barns, fences, and outbuildings, which would later house the stock animals that provided the bulk of his farming income and trade, including a large limestone spring house which provided the family with fresh drinking water. By 1847, Mr. Bowman had built quite a bit of financial and political cloud about himself, and the industrial era was knocking on his doorstep, inviting new modes of business, transaction, communication, and transportation. At about this time, a group of forward thinkers were making plans to lay the first section of rail to be known as the New Albany, Salem, and Chicago Railroad, later the Monon, across Washington County, Indiana. Having land located along the route of the incoming Commerce Dragon certainly would have been advantageous to any businessman involved in the livestock trade, as there were few finished roads at the time running from Washington County to the Ohio River, and the most convenient river route would have been located in Millport, about 20 miles north. It's been speculated that as much as 30% of the stock for the county of Washington was purchased by Mr. Bowman in order to secure such easy access. It's also claimed that this is why the railroad was surveyed through Red Rock Cut, which is a well-known trouble spot for engines, and would have required substantial labor to clear and level as opposed to an easier and less costly route. It bears some amount of sense, then, why said track should make such an extreme curve west towards Salem and Harristown Crossing, as that would have been necessary to touch Mr. Bowman's land. Still visible to this day, and next to Mr. Bowman's grave, is the grade from a previously installed rail siding, which once bore the name Bowman Station, from which he often boarded the engine, which would take him to his various business destinations in New Albany and Salem, Indiana, and presumably served him well when he took office in the state. Mr. Bowman, a lifetime Democrat of the Jeffersonian persuasion, 
was in 1854 elected to his first term in office as state representative, an office he once again was awarded in 1856. Thereafter, in 1860, 1865, 1867, 1871, and 1873, he was elected and re-elected without challenge to the state senate. He was well-liked as a statesman and served well his adoptive state. His political stance is likely best summed up by an inscription he paid to have placed on his brother Elisha's tombstone in the Wilson Mead Cemetery that reads, he believed that nothing but the success of the Democratic Party would ever save this union. Made more funny by the fact that at the time, the Wilsons and Meads were both prominent Republican families. On July 11th of 1863, the Civil War came home to roost in the towns of Pekin and Salem when John Hunt Morgan brought a taste of the war to our county, affecting John A. Bowman directly, apparently, as he found himself recruited by H.D. Henderson to be the active recruiting associate of Pierce Township and raising men for the Indiana militia, he himself becoming a corporal thereof. For this, Mr. Bowman is only cited in the centennial history of Washington County and the transactions of the Indiana State Medical Society. It is an interesting moment in his life, nonetheless, and only makes the dimensionality of his character that much more interesting considering his Jeffersonian leanings during the war. Mr. Bowman, not one to be content simply with living the life of a well-known local farmer and businessman, was quite politically and socially active through his life. He apparently found little time for marriage until much later on, as in the centennial history of Washington County, he is mentioned as a bachelor, and his address is given. A member of both the Knights of Pythias in Salem, as well as the Fraternal Order of Freemasons, it's likely that Mr. Bowman often found himself rubbing elbows with any number of local, well-known businessmen in Washington County, including Mr. Lee Sinclair of West Baden fame. Mr. Bowman, or Colonel Bowman, as it seems he was somewhat known as, was also made an honorary member of the Washington County Medical Society. In September of 1879, John found himself in the position of investment baker when he became the principal shareholder of stock in an investment group which purchased the Union Planners Bank in Salem, Indiana. After President James Vine skipped town with the bank's money to pay off gambling debts, within a year, Jack had turned a profit on the bank, put it back in the black, and sold the entire investment off to Lee Sinclair, who later built West Baden Springs. Presumably, somewhere within this time period, Mr. Bowman also served as the chief shareholder of the New Albany, Indiana State Bank. As it's accredited to him in many biographical sketches, but no timetable was given for its purchase or his services or duties therein. On January 17th, John Bowman finally settled down and married Mary J. Davis Howe, the widow of Mr. William N. Howe. To this union were born no children, but a child from a previous marriage, Flora E. became the inheritor of Bowman's estate in later years, giving possibly an indication of Mr. Bowman's affections for her. On February 2nd, 1881, Mr. Bowman concreted his agricultural legacy in Washington County by becoming one of the founding members of and the first president of the Washington County Agricultural, Horticultural, Mechanical, and Industrial Association, who on September 13th through 17th of that same year held the first ever Washington County Agricultural Fair that paid out a premium to participants of $2,126.50. In 1882, the board was awarded the Silver Medal by the State Board of Agriculture for Best Fair Report. In the summer of 1885, a fire broke out on the Bowman farm, which began consuming fences around the farm, and which caused Mr. Bowman a great deal of anguish for months to come, as he, at the age of 67, worked to extinguish the flames and found himself overtaken with heat exhaustion. Over the next 15 months, Mr. Bowman began to feel the effects of a chronic form of inflammation of the stomach, and though it did not stop him from attending to his well-loved business, by September 22nd of 1886, 
Mr. Bowman had decided to leave the world behind, as well as the beautiful but now crumbling estate mentioned in the century's opening. In life, John Bowman was a good-humored man and well-known as a joker. It is in this heritage that he leaves us with a haunting refrain about quote-unquote rattling old bones. Mr. Bowman was said to have remarked to his family that he so loved his railroad that he wished to be buried next to the line, so as the trains passed, he could feel the vibrations rattle my old bones. Mr. Bowman is said to have been buried in a lead-lined casket filled with liquor to preserve his body for the day that he's called home. A large granite obelisk marks his final resting place on the red rock cut within full view of his home. In his obituary, it's remarked that Mr. Bowman was the owner of some 924 acres of well-tended farmland and was worth possibly as much as $100,000. His cultural value, of course, is priceless. hoping you guys sort of feel like you know John Bowman a little bit better but I wanted to fill you in just a little bit more on things that I found out after the article so one of the interesting things I mentioned in the article I just read to you was the story of John A. Bowman being buried in a cask of liquor so it turns out that there is a receipt for the burial and the funeral expenses of John A. Bowman it's a very detailed uh, accounting of John A. Bowman's funeral. And the very first thing that I want to mention is that his body laid in state in the foyer of that home for three days for visitors to come through and visit John A. Bowman from all over Indiana and presumably all over the United States. The guy had friends in high places, probably some friends in low places too. But one of the really interesting things about that is him being buried in a vat of liquor, as I said. What he was actually buried in was what was called a Fisk metallic cask. If you don't know what this is, look it up. It's an interesting Victorian era coffin of sorts, made of iron. It's also airtight. It has a viewing window. So when you have the funeral, you don't have the casket open. Back in those days, uh, if there was embalming, it was very primitive. So obviously, if you're going to have a body lay in state for three or four days, you can't have that coffin open. You're going to have some, uh, some unpleasant aromas arising. But what you can do is put them in a Fisk metallic cask, which has a, a faceplate covering that you can move and a piece of glass with a viewing window so you can see the face. Now, these casks were often filled with either liquor, high-proof ethanol, or inert gas. And the idea was that they would perfectly preserve a body if you look online, you'll find out they didn't always perfectly preserve bodies, but they do still find these when they're excavating old cemeteries. And a lot of very cool history has been found because these casks have preserved that history. Now, the interesting thing about Bowman was that I also mentioned that he was obviously a Freemason. He was also a member of the Knights of Pythias. He had some occult leanings. And bear in mind that the decade in which he died is sort of the height of the reanimation craze, this idea that maybe one day you could escape death, you could come back from death. The more I learned about John Bowman, the more I realized that he wanted to escape death. He wanted to come back from death. In the words of Rob Zombie, he wanted more life. He wasn't done. And to that end, 
he implemented some interesting things in his burial. Not only the Fisk metallic cask, but also the very first concrete vault installed in a grave in Washington County, Indiana. To that, he added four copper grounding rods at the four corners of his grave with four copper lines leading directly to the Fisk metallic cask. Why would you do that? I can't come up with any reason whatsoever why you would do that and why you would make a large granite obelisk other than much like Mary Shelley's creation, Frankenstein, he thought he was coming back. Amongst the other things that I learned in the intervening time period from exploring the house and researching was that when he died, he still had two siblings that were underage and his mother who was in failing health. He moved his mother and these two siblings into his house and he raised them. And he had his mom there until the day she died. She's also buried at the Wilson Mead Cemetery. And he raised these two siblings to adulthood himself. That'll come back into play here shortly when we get into the more ghostly side of things. The other thing to bear in mind about Washington County, Indiana, and Southern Indiana in general, is that Southern Indiana was very split during the Civil War. We had a lot of peace Democrats, what were called Copperheads, Southern sympathizers. Bowman was not one of these, despite his dealings with the South. The other part of our population, however, was Quaker and very heavily involved in the Underground Railroad. Now, there are no historical references to Mr. Bowman being involved in the Underground Railroad, but one of the things that I found exploring his house and working on the reconstruction of his house was that in that root cellar underneath the kitchen, it's really the entrance is in the kitchen, it's underneath the south side front room, was a wooden wall with a hidden door. And behind that hidden door was a shelf of sorts big enough to set a full-grown adult, multiple full-grown adults. And on the back side of that wood, when we took that false wall down, there were etched names and dates. Now, is it possible that Mr. Bowman was working with the Underground Railroad? I believe so. I very firmly believe so. I also mentioned the Limestone Spring House, which is cool and it's beautiful. But one of the other things I found on an old map of Washington County history was that at one point in time, Mr. Bowman had turned that into a public camping ground where the train would stop and let off campers slash picnickers. And it was called Spurting Springs, which is pretty cool. It's down a very large hill. It would have been a giant pain in the ass to haul water back up to the house from that. So one of the other interesting architectural features I found out about later on was that Mr. Bowman had at some point in time, at least by the 1870s, installed a gutter system to the house, which had a slate roof with a membrane that would collect rainwater and run it into a cistern. Now, I had presumed that that cistern was long gone, but one of the interesting accounts of my time restoring the Bowman house 
was that the very first project I worked on was a bathroom that had been added much later on, probably in the 1970s by the look of it, looks of it. And I was ripping that bathroom off the exterior of the house before we could start work on anything else. And I had noticed an area where there were a number of garbage bags. The house had been rented over the years to multiple different people, multiple families. And I didn't think much of those garbage bags. The house hadn't really probably been rented out in 10 or 15 years. So I thought, well, somebody just threw their garbage out here and we'll pick that up later. Well, as I went to rip the, uh, the bathtub out of this bathroom, I stepped backwards and uh, I felt my right foot go into a hole. And at first I thought, well, that's a big ass groundhog hole is what that is. Uh, that's a little weird. Better get my leg out of here before, um, before I get bit by a groundhog. And uh, somehow, luckily, what had happened was these trash bags had caught on the edge of the hole to the cistern. And I got crawled up out of there and I looked back in the hole and realized it was a 30 foot brick lined hole straight to the bottom. At the time, I had no cell phone signal out there at that location. And had I fallen into that cistern, I was alone. Nobody maybe would have found me until late that evening or maybe the next day. And I'd have been lucky if I wasn't severely injured. With all that being said, we're now going to go into some of these ghost stories and some of the things that happened to me. Thanks for listening. I hope you guys are enjoying this. So needless to say, by the fall of 2012, I was fairly well obsessed with this story, this history of John A. Bowman, this this unique, interesting businessman who lived not a mile and a half, two miles down the railroad track from where I had grown up and and farmed and moonshined my whole life. It was also at this time period I was sort of exploring the possibilities of my life because up to that point, you know, I had basically been running a small produce slash seed research farm. And to be honest with you, it wasn't making much money. Um, I knew that I wanted to do something based in agriculture. I knew I wanted to do something based in history, and I knew that distillation was really the only discernible skill that I had. And so for me at that time, the uh, the boundaries between those three things in my brain were breaking down to such an extent that the three became very, very interrelated. Not one could be explored without the other two being involved in some way, shape, or form. And subsequently, when I came up with a uh, whiskey mash bill that I really liked, 60% corn, 17 wheat, 13 oats, and 10% malt that I felt like I had really mastered, I named it John A. Bowman. And as you know, it later became Lee W. Sinclair for the obvious reasons. Now, at the same time, I was really delving deep into the history of John Bowman and trying to find out more and more. I was spending more time at the old cemetery. I was spending a lot of time at the abandoned house, um, really kind of looking around to see what I could find, to see if anything had been missed over the years. I found the old bottle dump. I found um, uh, any number of trash heaps. I found the old uh, um, privy, all those things I found, which was really interesting. I was also uh, spending an inordinate amount of time at the Stevens Museum, the John Hay Center in Salem, Indiana, researching John A. Bowman and his associates. And I was lucky enough to wander into a volunteer there who was a descendant of his stepdaughter. She just happened to have any number of artifacts on hand 
including one of his old business jackets. We found a photo of him in his younger years. There was a photo of him as a state senator in the basement of the museum, which was very cool. She also had a silver cup that he had won at the agricultural fair that he started. And I don't believe the cup said on it what it was won for, what category it was won for, whatever. It was just really cool that it belonged to him. She also had one of his checkbooks that was left behind from his estate for his wife, stepdaughter, and her subsequent son. And I don't know if you've ever seen any of the really old checkbooks, but the checks were massive. They were huge. They were, you know, a little wider than a, a standard sheet of printing paper and uh, about half as tall and just beautiful um, printing on them as well. So that was really cool. I ran into a train engineer who told me that uh, for years when trains would come through, this had been passed down from engineer to engineer, when trains would come through traveling from the north to the south along that stretch of track when they got to the big curve by Bowman's Monument, it had become a sign of respect and good luck to, uh, to lay onto the air horn when you got to that curve, because especially at night, when you first come around that curve, the very first thing that you would see from the engineer's position on the train was that giant obelisk. Now, he didn't have any ghost stories about Mr. Bowman, which I suppose maybe disappointed me a little bit, because if you're going to see something weird, that's the time of day that it's going to be, you know, late at night, one, two, three o'clock in the morning in a rural area where nobody else is going to be at on the tracks with a giant grave in front of you. I was also lucky enough to find some people that had lived at the Bowman house over the years, and they related some interesting um, experiences to me, including uh, an instance where one man was in the kitchen making a sandwich and he had left uh, a loaf of bread on the counter, turned around to grab something else. And when he turned back around, the loaf of bread was levitating and levitated for a few seconds before it fell. Sort of prankster activity and knowing what we do about Bowman's history. Yeah, that makes sense. Stories about people hearing their name called out by man. Stories about hearing children playing around the house. Stories about footsteps in the house, about doors opening and closing of their own accord. And up to this point, I hadn't had a lot of experiences happen to me, uh, but I did end up having a number happen uh, in that fall when we found a buyer for the home. And this buyer for the home, we knew had money to buy the home, purchase it, and fix it the way it should have been. They were working with Indiana Landmarks and one of the, uh, the covenants was that they had to make the outside look the way it would have when the house was built, which I was very excited about. <clears throat> with that being said, I, I had already done all the historical research on this and the people who wanted to buy the house had reached out to me and touched base with me and they wanted to bring me in on it to be a historical advisor, help them find um, contractors who could do the job the right way. And subsequently, they also gave me a job doing the initial demolition on the house because they knew I wanted to further explore the house. And I was very curious about what may or may not be laying underneath those floorboards in the house. So up to this point, the only experiences I'd really ever had was being in the house and being in the basement at one point in time and hearing from the south front room, heavy booted footsteps, I ran back up the stairs, ran into that room. Nobody was there, of course. But once I started working on the house, activity ramped up a little bit. Now there was nothing crazy that happened, but there were some really cool instances. So one of the very first instances was, I was there working, tearing out the, uh, the flooring in the back room 
uh, which half the flooring had already fallen through prior to that. And we actually had a, a dendrochronologist check that out. And we found out that the logs for that flooring were actually about 20 to 30 years older than the house itself was. And we still don't know where those logs would have came from, but that was very interesting. But as I was tearing out the flooring, I noticed that I heard what sounded like footsteps above me in the ballroom. And being in a room where I could see all the doors, I knew nobody had come in. So I stopped working, I listened for a few seconds, and footsteps stopped. All right, well, that's weird, but it's sort of par for the course. I've had this happen once before. I went back to work. And as I'm tearing it back out, I hear these footsteps again. But all right, well, now I'm going to be brave enough. I'm going to go check this out. So I went up the old steps, got up to the ballroom. Of course, there's nothing there. Walked around, looked around. I walked across the floor, and I could tell you, because I was wearing work boots, that it was a very similar sound, although not as crisp when I was walking across it. Come back down the steps, get to the bottom of the steps. And as I'm about to step off the last step, I hear a man say my first name. All right, now, now it's getting super weird. So I said, all right, Mr. Bowman. Yep, I know you're here. I'm happy to spend my Thanksgiving with you. Glad to be here. All that stuff went on about my day. Shortly thereafter, I was in the kitchen ripping out the old kitchen floor because it had started to rot. And uh, we actually found out that the old, um, uh, the old floor joists in the kitchen were actually original untreated cross ties from when they put the railroad in, which was pretty cool. But as I'm in between two cross ties ripping stuff out in there one day, uh, during the day, I believe also in November, maybe, maybe even into December, I don't remember. Very nice day outside, sun was shining fairly warm for the time of year it was but I heard two children clear as day a little boy and a little girl maybe between the ages of seven and ten a little girl being younger a little boy being a little older playing as little kids do sound like maybe they were playing ball or something of that nature you know kicking a ball back and forth or something couldn't really tell but I also heard a little conversation and I thought well it is a nice day you know people know about this place there may be somebody out hiking there may be somebody out here just you know checking out the old house or whatever so I came out of the kitchen floor and I went to go look because there's really not supposed to be any trespassers on the property at this point. Nobody was there. And I heard this three or four different times that day, which it didn't give me anything, any creepy vibes or any chills or anything like that. It wasn't as though, in my opinion, they were ghosts. What I associated with was, was as I said earlier, John had a younger brother and sister that he came, he took care of when his father passed away. And I thought, well, maybe this is, you know, what they call a residual haunting. It's like a playback as though, you know, you recorded a tape and you're playing that tape back and seeing and hearing those things that happened during that moment. <laughs> so get through that day. Um, one of the things that happened to me on multiple occasions was walking up to the back door to walk in. The back door actually faces the county road. So it's the back of the house as opposed to the front of the house, as most people think the front of the house faced the railroad tracks. And many times the door would open of its own accord, which is not weird. It's an old house. The floor on the other side of that door was rotted out, but you would walk in, you'd say, hello, Mr. Bowman. And then many times the door would close behind you. Now this happened to my father enough times that my dad, Dale Bishop, actually started walking up to the house and saying, hey, Mr. Bowman, do you mind if I come in? And it was almost like an experiment every time. Every time he would do it, the door would open. And when he left, he would purposely leave the door closed and he would say, all right, Mr. Bowman, you have a good one. And as he walked away, the door would close behind him. 
So those sort of things were, were fairly common. The only thing that ever made me feel a little bit odd was I was in the basement and I was kind of digging around a bit. You know, the basement, it's, a, it's an old root cellar. There's a lot of dirt on the floor. If something got dropped, it would have easily been covered with soil, whatever. I thought if you're going to find something, this is where you're going to find something at. And I did find some old bottles there. We had found, me and some friends had found some bottles up underneath the staircase as well upstairs, uh, where we believe there may have been a medicine cabinet at one point in time because the bottles were all associated with old 1880s uh, medicine bottles, uh, including some heavy duty painkillers, which I suspect that Bowman would have been using if he had what I believe he had, which was likely stomach cancer. But I was digging around in the basement and I had to go over and, and the old wooden wall that I told you about with the hidden door with the shelf where people could have sat at potentially used for the Underground Railroad. We had to take that wall down because there were going to be structural issues there. So I had taken that wall down and there was some soil up on the shelf and I was sort of digging around in it and going, well, maybe I'll find something here. You know, and kind of, I kind of half talking to myself, half talking to John Bowman as well. And from the other side of the basement, which uh, was a shelf about 10 foot deep, about two feet off the normal basement floor, which is where you would actually kept your root vegetables because uh, they needed some more humidity. There was a rock thrown about the size of a quarter and it hit the wall in front of me. I saw it hit the wall. I heard it hit the wall. It had enough force that it made a noise and it fell in front of me. And I immediately stopped what I was doing. I stood up. I turned around, looked at the other side of the basement. And I said, Mr. Bowman, I don't know what's in this basement that you don't want me or anybody else to know about. I don't care what's in this basement that you don't want me or anybody else to know about. But what I will tell you is I will no longer be digging in your basement. And I left that basement and I never went back to it. And if I went back to that house today, I wouldn't go back in that basement. Not because I think there's anything bad there, but because he clearly had some secrets he didn't want out. And that's okay. Everybody does. You know, maybe he didn't want people to know that he was involved in the Underground Railroad considering his, his democratic leanings at the time. So there's that possibility. I also did a bunch of research and, and confirmed for sure that John's wife was buried next to John, but there was no headstone for her despite the fact that there was money left behind for a headstone. And as such, I went to the cemetery commission and I told them about this. And um, I had been doing some dowsing at the time. For those of you unfamiliar with dowsing, it's like water witching. And you can use it to find unmarked graves. And I'd gotten a couple good hits. And I went to the cemetery commission here in the county and I told them, you know, that she was buried there. There was money left for a stone, but there was never any stone placed. Could we potentially do something? In order to get a stone made and to, to have it placed there, we had to prove that there was a grave there. So we actually did what was called grave probing, which is exactly what it sounds like. You use a probe and you put it into the ground and you look for voids. And if there is a void or the soil is loose or, or the, the structure of the soil is different as it would be from being mixed by digging it out and putting it back in a hole, there's a grave there. So we probed the site and right next to Mr. Bowman, we did find a grave that we do believe was his wife's. But we also found another grave on the other side. And I had heard over the years that the farmer that had previously owned the property, he had actually tried to destroy the cemetery at one point in time. The cemetery apparently used to have a bigger footprint than it does. And he had bulldozed it out to make room for farming land. So we don't really know how many graves are there. Um, we only know of two that are reported historically, but that doesn't mean there wouldn't have been more. And bear in mind, we still don't know where John's father was buried at. I think it's a very good possibility that third grave was that of his father. 
Nonetheless, we were able to get a monument made, a concrete monument that told the story of John Bowman and had his wife's name on it as well, so that her, her grave would always be marked and always be remembered. Now, there's not a lot of those paranormal things there that I just told you about that are all that enthralling, but they're interesting, they're contextual, and they were things that influenced me and inspired me to pursue distillation in the way that I have as a, a sort of um, way of also preserving history. And as such, as I mentioned, that's why the Lee W. Sinclair is named Lee W. Sinclair and not John A. Bowman, despite the fact that John A. Bowman is the one that inspired that spirit. So John A. Bowman is truly one of the lost spirits of Southern Indiana distillation history. And for me, this was an important story to get out as my first story. Uh, something I'd never shared with anybody before and obviously not as heavy on the paranormal as what future episodes of the show will be. But nonetheless, something I thought you guys might enjoy. So I hope you guys will tune in for future episodes. There's more cool stuff coming. There's more personal experiences that are much more supernatural than this one. Uh, the format, again, may not be the same as what it is here, but thank you for tuning in to If You Have Ghosts, You Have Everything. And be sure to also check out my One Piece at a Time Distilling Institute videos if you're at all interested in the art of distillation. Check out spiritsoffrenchlick.com. And if you want to buy some of our bottles, including perhaps the Lee W. Sinclair, which would be a great pour to have with this particular show, check out sealbox.com. Until next time, guys, I love y'all. Keep it weird. Hey, you're still here. So uh, I try to do this on every episode, a little, a little bonus at the very end of the episode. And this time it was literally just something I forgot to add to the story of John A. Bowman. So for those of you who do follow my distilling career and have seen my videos and, and do know that we pay tribute to these ghosts, these ghosts that give us everything by visiting their graves and taking them a drink of the product or leaving them bottle number one of the product that they inspired before the house was finished in the foyer foyer, whatever you want to call it. I'm too cornbread to say it the correct way. I did take a bottle, a jar of John A. Bowman corn whiskey and place it in the wall before the drywall went up. So to this day and until that house crumbles to dust, there is a bottle of John A. Bowman corn whiskey in the wall as tribute to Mr. Bowman. There's also been any number of bottles, jars of John A. Bowman and bottles of Lee W. Sinclair poured upon the grave of the man himself as a tribute. Again, thanks for tuning in, guys. Have a great one and keep it weird.